You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning. We all survived the week. Or not. Let's open in prayer. Father, it is with delight that we open your word again this morning in anticipation, knowing that your Holy Spirit has something for us every time we enter your word with open hearts. Lord, we pray that uh, this morning as we, we look into this chapter in 1 Corinthians and recognize that even today, the church is suffused with these things. But you have changed our hearts. You have made us new. All things have become new. And so as we, we look into your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with teaching and encouragement and blessing that we can use to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to read the whole chapter this morning because we're going to we're going to do a little review, which will take us back before verse 11. I'm thinking the last time I was with you, we actually finished verse 11, if I'm not mistaken. Let me look at my handy-dandy notes here. Yeah, we did. But we'll do a little review to catch back up. And uh, then we're going to plunge into the end of this chapter. And um, it's like Paul is... <clears throat> It's a whirlwind of teaching that he has for these people because they've got so much wrong. And what's amazing to me is that on the one hand, it's amazing that they've had this teaching before. Paul indicates that throughout the book that, that this, and, and that he was there for 18 months. And yet they devolve into this kind of crass, unbiblical mess. Far be it from the church today to do that, right? I don't, I, it, I think it was, well, it's hard to say because you, you, we don't know what the membership was at the beginning of the devol, of, of the devolution. And we don't know what the membership was when Paul's book was read. What, but, but I would guess that there's always, as always, there's leaders in these false philosophies and there will be people who are in agreement with them. There will be people who are not in agreement, but too afraid to speak up. And then there will be people who are willing to speak up. And then you will have either division or, or some variation of that. But it's hard to say. This is pretty widespread throughout this, this group is my, my estimation. How about yours? Does it seem like there's more than one or two? That he's not just talking to Bill and Fred. See, there's none of those here, so I can say those names. He's talking to groups of people who have imbibe this foolishness. But bear in mind, he's talking to groups of people who come out of a lifestyle. All of them, well, not all of them. Of course, there's going to be proselytes who came in from around the country. There'll be Jewish folks there. But but within Greece itself, all of them come from this way of thinking. That And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as we get farther into it, I'm going to read to you some of the famous Greek sayings of the day, which will kind of give you a flavor as to what they believed. And we can look at it from a biblical perspective and say it's stupid, it's vile, it's wicked. But from their perspective, this is how they were raised. This is what they were brought up in. This is what they knew. 
This was their bread and butter daily, their meat and potatoes, uh, philosophically speaking. And so for Paul to bring in this teaching, this was radically opposite what they had been taught. And so I, I can give them that. that it, it, it's easy for stuff to seep back into our lives that we were raised with in whatever that is. But at any rate, Paul did give them two a, a year and a half of teaching, biblical teaching. And that's why he, in this chapter alone, he says, do you not know? And when we hear that verse, when we hear... When we, when we read Paul saying, do you not know, it's good for us to picture one of our parents saying, don't, don't you know? Don't you, you know? It's not like they, w- they would stand up there and stoically say, do you not know? That's not how my parents said it. Usually it was accompanied with pain. And, and rightly so. Don't, don't misunderstand me. So for, for Paul to say, do you not know, the six times that he says it in this chapter, is a statement to us in one chapter how much he had to deal with. So let's go ahead and read chapter 6. And, and again, we all know that the chapters were are somewhat arbitrary, or are arbitrary, but nevertheless, they do give us a good, good pegs to hang things on as we work through the Scripture. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, page 1476. Do you not know? It's page, pardon me. Oh, you got a better Bible than me. you got more stuff. All right, here we go. Chapter 6. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? That's, by the way, that's another way of saying the same thing. Do you appoint them? He's he's doing the same thing. Who are of no account in the church? Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with the both of them. <laughs> Yet the body is not for immorality. <coughs> but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. <clears throat> now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is the whole, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, in your body. And this is going to be a, a, a rallying card that Paul will use because the, the Greeks had separated the notion of spirit and body in a radical way. It's radical to us, but in their day, it was, it was just the way things were. And so what we came through before I left, we looked at a list of people that Paul said, do you not know that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he names them. They're unrighteous. He names fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these who practice these things, who are consumed by these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul reminds them. And why do you think he's reminding them of that? Because some of them were doing it. In the church, we have, actually, today, in the church, in the pulpit, we have, let me go through the list, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, coveters, uh, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. We have that. We have that in spades. And the sad thing is, is the world looks at that when the person is a person of the cloth and they attribute all of Christianity those things. And that's a definite difficulty that has to be overcome, <laughs> to say the least. So we we looked at all the different definitions of the words and uh, the nice thing about those definitions is that they mean the same thing that they've always meant. Swindler's a swindler. The world around. Go ahead, fill in the rest of that and make it a poem. <laughs> You think he's going to sell you something, but he takes away a pound. How was that? So these people are in the church. They're practicing these things. And not only that, but when one of them does something to another, rather than going to the church, going to the church body and dealing with it, they take the Corinthians are taking it outside to law courts. So Paul goes through all of that in the first, well, actually in chapter 5 as well, but in the first 11 verses, And then he reminds them with this verse. And this is something that I think we would all do well to remember when we're we're looking down our nose at someone who is one of those, one of the list here. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. That is set aside for the work that God had for you in ages past. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about that. But you were justified instantaneously. I'm not a very good snapper, so I won't do it. But instantaneously, at your translation into the, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light with, by the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did? Sure. By the work that the Lord Jesus Christ redid, did? You were automatically restarted. <laughs> automatically restarted. Instantaneously rejuvenated. Made new. All kidding aside, is that a wondrous thing or what? I still, at times, I'll be reading through the scriptures and he's talking, he's telling me in the scriptures, because you know God talks, he speaks. Right there. He's speaking to me about the things that are for me now. And I said, why? Because I was a swindler. I was rapacious. I was a coveter, a coveter. I was a thief. I was those things. But he changed me. Paul says, you were, but you were sanctified. You were justified instantaneously. And it was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. 
God did this. God did it alone. And you have been made the beneficiaries of it. So why do you not know? Why, he says, are you still doing these things? So now we're going to look at a section that has has been it's 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 easy to misinterpret Paul's to misuse Paul's saying sometimes. So verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It's always possible when reading the writings of the word of the apostle Paul, especially in the book of Galatians, that people may take them too far and assume that the Christian is in an untrue sense the most free person on the planet and can do anything. I actually had, I worked with a guy. I think I might have told this story. This was like, it was back when there was a, a, a lumber mill in Kootenai. Anybody remember that? There used to be Aero Tie Mill. That was a long time ago. I was like, right after they created dirt. Anyway, this guy, I worked with him and he was going to, he, he was planning on fornication. Because he told me God would forgive him. And I was a young Christian at the time, fairly young, and I, I didn't have, you know, the, the, the round, the round, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the more rounded experience in scripture that I have now. But I knew that was wrong. I knew that was bogus. And so I went home that night and I, I began studying it and I came back and talked to him about it. He just water off a duck's back. He had this plan. This was how he was brought up. This had crept back into his life. He was a young man. He was actually younger than me. Now, I don't know where he's at today, but it's easy to take things too far. And that's one way of doing it. Uh, the statement, all lawful thing, all things are lawful for me is certainly a Corinthian maxim. This was a Greek maxim and was related to the Greek concept that the body is not good. Only the spirit is good. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said this. He said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. A common Greek saying what the, the, was this, the body is a tomb. This is what these Corinthians were brought up with all their lives from a child. The soul was what was important. The body did not matter. And thus, whatever the body did to satisfy its desires was fine, whatever it did. This is a distortion of Paul's teaching. And it was almost inevitable that the Corinthians would take his teaching of the freedom that salvation brings to its illogical maximum, illogical maximum conclusion. Paul's declaration that we are free from the law was misread by the Corinthians to imply that the law and thus all laws, even moral laws, held no sway over the Christian. He could do whatever he wanted. I can do whatever I want in the body. It doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit, the soul, that which God sanctifies. So Paul starts this dialogue in verse 12. With that Corinthian maximum, maxim. Yes, you say all things are lawful for you, but not everything is profitable. You can, you can relate that in the business world. You can relate that in marriage. You can relate that in cooking. You can, everything is, is possible, but not everything is, po- is profitable. So a little oregano is good. Therefore, follow that to its logical extreme. You ever eat some stew that tasted like 14 pounds of oregano, your eyes water, your legs twitch. It's bad stuff. And I'm being silly in some respects, but not really. This was um, most certainly a saying from Greek society that had wormed its way into the Corinthian church, most likely through the lives of those who had been raised on these ideas. 
Um, it was a cover. It was an excuse to do the undoable. It was a cover for those who foolish enough to think that they could indulge in sexual sin without consequence. All sin is evil. But some sins have greater consequence here on this planet. For example, the thin of Seth, the thin of Seth, that sounds like something from out of the Lord of the Rings. The, the sin of theft is destructive, but repayment can be made. Repentance can restore. Can it not? You, you've had your, your car stolen and a week later the person brings it back, repents. That relationship, that, that all can be restored. Can it not? That's still a sin. Still something that would, that would take a body to hell. That would take a soul, a body, and a spirit to hell. The sin of murder, however, results in something that can never be given back. The life of the one murdered. Now, repentance can happen. And redemption can occur. But it is a far, a far more heinous sin, is it not, than the sin of theft? Because of the consequences of the sin. The sin of gossip can never truly be repaired, no matter how repentant the gossiper is. One person made a, an analogy. He was talking, he was dealing, I don't know, if it's one of those urban, Christian urban legends, so I'm going to use it. He was dealing with someone who had struggled with gossip. I'll get right to you in just a minute, Carol. And he took the person to the top of a ridge top with a pillow full of a feather pillow. And he said, now rip the pillow open. The wind was blowing pretty hard. And he said, now shake it in the wind. So they did that. He said, now go gather all those feathers and put them back in the pillow. That's what gossip is like. You, you can repent of it, but you can hardly undo the damage, Carol. We cannot judge the heart, but we can say that a life characterized by a suffusion of those sins is very likely a life that is not redeemed. No. But so you would react to that person differently than you would to a known Christian who had fallen. You would give them the gospel to a known Christian who had fallen. You would come around them and seek them to seek for them to uh, become repentant and to turn from their sin. But um, and when I say known as much as we can know, At any rate, what, what Paul is dealing with here is people who are mouthing the Christian platitudes, but living lives that have no resemblance to a redeemed, sanctified, justified life. No resemblance. They do everything. They're, they're, remember we read them, they're swindlers, they're covetous, they're gossipers, they're all of those things. <laughs> um, sexual sin has far-reaching destructive effects. Continuing on this, this um, theme that some sin, all sin is bad, but some, some sins have far more uh, consequences on this planet in our lives. Um, sex, the, a sexual sin has far-reaching destructive effects that surpass most other, most other types of sin. The proper expression of healthy sexual relationships is within heterosexual marriage. Outside of marriage, the Bible comments a great deal on what will occur to those who indulge in illicit sexual relationships, and they will not be profitable, as Paul says. Yes, you may do those things, but they will not be profitable. The word profitable is to bring something together, and the idea being that it's brought together and it's useful, it's worthy, it's helpful. (coughs) Indeed, it's... You could characterize it as wonderful. Um, it's helpful to note that Paul in this verse and subsequent is dealing with the notion that apparently in the Corinthian church, it was deemed acceptable to hire the services of a prostitute. Verse 15 says, do you not know? Again, was that helpful the way that when I read it that way? Do you not know, he says in 15, that 
your bodies are members of Christ, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So, obviously, the Corinthian, there were those in the Corinthian church who thought it was acceptable to hire the services of a prostitute. This is a blatant, immoral misuse of the freedom Paul is talking about that we have in Christ. What happens to those who commit immorality in this way? Now, there's a loss of health. There can be a loss of possessions, loss of property, loss of honor, loss of respect, loss of dignity, and and diseases can accompany it. There's all kinds of things that they can and often, most often do accompany it. Now, not everyone who commits these things will suffer all of these, but the potential is certainly there. Um, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 11. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. This is before he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. That you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. The gist of this section is when it attempts to waylay you, run. And Paul is going to give that advice later on. He's going to say, flee immorality. Don't stand and fight. Don't put on the armor of God. Don't flee. Run. And that's what Solomon is saying here. David committed the sin with Bathsheba and subsequent to that, murdered to cover that sin. Sin, unrepented of, begets more sin. Begets more sin. And begets sin necessary to cover and make easier the previous sin. The consequences for David were lifelong and they even affected his legacy. Now we know him as a God, as a man after God's own heart, but we also know him for his blatant sin. He did repent. Paul refers to something mastering him in verse 11. He says, I will not be mastered by anything. The only master we should have is the Holy Spirit. He refused to be enslaved by any habit or desire. He especially refused to be enslaved, to be a slave to any sin. In Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. So the thief who previously presented his hands and his eyes and his feet to the quick removal of your property without you knowing about it can now turn those skills to doing something that brings glory to the, to the Father. I marvel at the intelligence and the obvious time that hackers put in to take money from us uh, unlawfully. Why don't they put those skills to work and make money the right way? They obviously have skills because they get past the best uh, firewalls and antivirus and anti-malware. They can, they figured out ways to get past that. They're really good at what they do. They could earn an honest living. They could take those skills 
and not let them be master, not let sin be a master over them, but they first have to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the very grace that the Corinthians were misunderstanding and misapplying to their detriment was given to them by God to prevent them from being dominated by sin. And today, to prevent us from being dominated by sin. The ability and the apparent freedom to do something is not necessarily a conclusive test as to whether it should be done or not. Just because you can. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. (laughs) Well, I can. No, I'm not even going to get into it. (laughs) Just because I can do something. Okay. What is permissible may not be beneficial to myself and to others. It may not be beneficial to myself and to others. Just because I can do something doesn't absolve me of the responsibility to make sure that it does not take control of me. In Paul's later comparison of life to a race, he makes no bones about the fact that he disciplines himself and he makes his body his slave. He makes his body his slave so that he can run the race of life to win. First Corinthians 9, and we'll get to this. I hate to steal the thunder from future chapters, but that's what we're going to do. First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Again, here's those words in chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one? Well, Paul never saw competition today, but nevertheless, in, in, in real competition, he says, only one receives the prize. Run in, a, run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. A perishable wreath. It was a, an olive branch type wreath that they put around their head that would eventually dry up and wither away. It wasn't even a, a trophy with wood and gold and, and some guy on it going like this. You know, it was just a wreath and it would eventually waste away. But we, he says, an imperishable, an imperishable reward. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. The, I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Any questions on, I think we're done with verse, yeah, verse 12. Any questions or comments on verse 12? All things are permissible, but not all things are are, uh, profitable. Just because I can do it doesn't mean I should, Paul says. Verse 13, another Greek saying, these are all taken from the from the quotes of the day, from the rich and famous, from the 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 stars and the starlets and the folks in Greek Hollywood. These are the things that that would have been would have been the meat and potatoes at the breakfast table. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But Paul says this: but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. It was a cool little saying that you could hang. All kinds of things on. Well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So if the stomach desires food, what do you do? You feed it. You feed that puppy and you shut it up so it'll quit growling and embarrassing you. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. It's very likely that this is some kind of motto that the Corinthians were using to justify their immorality. Essentially, they were saying, my stomach dictates whether or not I eat. In the same way... If my body cries out for sex, I should just hire a prostitute. I, I'm hungry, I eat the food. My body cries out for this need, I satisfy it. Paul will have none of that. The fact is, he says, God will destroy the stomach 
He will also destroy food. That is, we will no longer have any need for food in our heavenly bodies. There's also, there's talk about banquets and food, but it's not something that we will have to have to sustain us. He will also, in that sense, destroy food as a necessary component of us living then. <laughs> he is telling the Corinthians that you cannot make this comparison, stomachs and sex. Don't, uh, uh, false comparisons happen all the time. If, then, and then you back up and you say, if, then, and it's a complete disparity, a comparison that has no it's a logical fallacy. Um, the stomach was indeed designed for food, but the body was not designed for immorality, he says. <laughs> That's a, you just stepped in the wrong direction. So the comparison is a logical fallacy. The body was designed by and for the Lord, and he holds sway over what we do with our bodies. Sexual impurity is clearly interdicted throughout Scripture, is it not? In the Old Testament, in other bo- sections of the New Testament, it's clearly interdicted. And so for the Corinthians to mouth this motto as a means of ignoring scriptural truth was self-serving, wicked, and dangerous. Eating the wrong kind of food could indeed cause a stomachache for a time, but indulging in impure and improper sex, as before noted, will have long-term repercussions, both emotional and physical. If one of the Corinthians were to quit eating, after a certain length of time, they would die of starvation. But the fact is, if one of them had abstained, for, had abstained from sexual immorality, the body would be just fine after many years. So even then, the analogy didn't work. Because the opposite, if you abstain from food long enough, you'll die. But if you abstain from immoral sex, will you die? Will you even have any negative repercussions? Not true negative repercussions. Any comments on verse 12? 13, I mean. Questions? This is very intricately connected with this. Sometimes when you read a scripture, you go, now, where did that come from? Verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And then in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So he's going to go through an explanation of who it's for, who it's about. Who's it about? Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through his power. Look at the marvelous affirmation affirmation of the deity of Christ here. Paul is calling the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord. Further than that, in a way that food never can attain, the body was made for the Lord, and we have been joined to him in a way that food is never joined to the stomach. Never joined to the stomach. We have been joined to him in a way that the relationship between the husband and wife pictures, and to pervert that is a wickedness beyond belief. And Paul will later emphasize this in verse 16. But first, uh, we have some kind of a up, update going on without my permission. So it's another one of my children, one of my teenagers. It just will not get my permission to do things. It's terrible. But Paul will emphasize this in verse 16. But also in chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 10 of Mark. So I, I would have had it up on the screen there, but it's not happening. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. But, Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then again in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, answering the Pharisees when they were asking him stupid, supercilious, self-serving questions. Ooh, three S's. We can make a sermon out of that. And he answered them, the Pharisees, and he said, 
Have you not read? This is Jesus. This may be where Paul got this. Have you not? Do you not know? Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In an even more dramatic and wondrous way, the body of the believer will exist forever and has been joined to Christ in his resurrection. Been joined to Christ in his resurrection as well. He was raised from the dead, and in him we are raised from the dead forever. This is something the stomach does not have a place in, but the body does. The stomach's not necessary, but the body is. The body will be redeemed. The body will be, we've been redeemed, but the body will be redeemed at the final time when the we're raised from the dead and joined with Christ. The body is raised and joined with Christ. The body of the believer is for the Lord because through Christ's resurrection, God has set in motion the reality of our own resurrection. This means that the believer's physical body is to be understood as joined to Christ's own body that was raised from the dead. So now he's setting the pace here, setting the stage here for helping them to understand what happens when they call on a prostitute. Any questions about verse 14 or comments? Verse 15, again, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a, pro- of a prostitute? May it never be. Previous to this, I mentioned that Paul uses this phrase, do you not know, six times in this chapter. Continuing on in this vein, Paul reminds the Corinthians that as believers, they are actually members of Christ and that they should have known this based on his earlier teaching. Do you not know? They should have known this. Later in this epistle, by the way, that is a, a wonderful reminder to us that we need to be reminding ourselves of the basic things. Peter said, I'm not ashamed to put you in mind of the basic things. Go back again and again. Study the gospel. Well, I'm already saved. I'm already, great. Study it some more. Remarkable. It's a remarkable thing. It's an unbelievable thing. Study it some more. Pay attention to it some more. And the Holy Spirit will give you insights in it. And in other sections of the scripture based on the gospel that you never thought of, that you wouldn't have thought of because he'll do it for you. And then I just, that was not in the text here. They're actually members of Christ and they should have known this based on his earlier teaching. Later in this epistle, Paul's wonderful analogy about the, port, the importance of ascribing to every part of the body equal usefulness. Remember, shall the eye say I'm not useful? Shall the ear say I'm not useful? Those, that part of the scriptures, that part of first Corinthians. He will ascribe to every part of the body equal usefulness, beauty, and need. Comments, that section comments back on this section. The Corinthians believers were each and every one of them members of the body of Christ. If they took their body and joined it to a prostitute, they were joining Christ and every other member of the body of Christ to that prostitute in a sense. This is not to say that our sin makes Christ or other members of the body sinners by our act. But it does follow that our action profanes Christ and, and it profanes other believers. It, it, it lowers the view of Christianity. It lowers the view of God. It, unfortunately, because when people, some people, the only thing they're going to see, only way they're ever going to see what God does is by looking at his followers. You've heard that saying, I'm the only epistle they may ever read. You may be. And by this act, Paul is saying you join Christ to a prostitute. Don't do it. So it's not, again, I'm not saying that if 
I commit a sin, I'm causing you to sin, and I'm causing Christ to be a sinner. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm profaning Christ, and I'm drawing other believers into the false idea of what a Christian is. (laughs) It's almost as if he shouts here, don't do it, don't do it. This ought not to be, he says. Apparently, other than at Corinthians, other than at Corinth, this has never been the understanding of any question down through the centuries. There are so many different ways to say this that it defies comprehension that the Corinthians would even think this way. Just because we have certain, this is um, Warren Wearsby in one of his comments. Just because we have certain normal desires given by God of creation does not mean that we must give in to them and always satisfy them. Sex outside of marriage is destructive. While sex inside of marriage can be creative and beautiful, there may be excitement, enjoyment, and enjoyment in sexual experience outside of marriage, but there is not enrichment. Sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it is not his, and he will one day have to pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and he will collect dividends. Sex within marriage can build a relationship that brings joy in the future, but sex apart from a marriage from marriage has a way of weakening future relationships, as every Christian marriage counselor will tell you. And another, uh, this is C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Every time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established, which must, which between them must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. That was his instructions to his sub-demon about how to get the guy. And then last, uh, this is out of... Um, Another commentary I read. When a Christian has sexual relations with a prostitute, he or she takes what belongs to God and gives it to someone else. This is stealing from God. When a Christian marriage, this does not happen because God has ordained and approves of marriage. In chapter 7, verse 14, he permits us to share our bodies with our lawful mates. Taking a member of Christ and uniting it to a harlot also involves the Lord in that immoral act. Paul's revulsion at the thought of this comes through graphically in his characteristic Meganuito, literally, may it not happen. We all have ways of shouting, don't do it, to one another. This was Paul's way of shouting to the Corinthians, don't do it, may it never be, may it not happen. Any comments about um, verse 15? Or do you not know, he says again, verse 16, that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. In a proper marital relationship, husband and wife are joined together and become one flesh. That is, they are a part of each other more fully than unmarried. Especially over time, as the marriage progresses, they become soulmates. This is how it should be, by the way. They become soulmates, best friends, confidants. And in a unique and permanent way, they are part of here. They are part of each other, especially because of the sexual relationship. People are looking for this. They're looking for love and acceptance. The Corinthians were looking for love and acceptance. The way God designed things, only within the bounds of a proper marital relationship can this particular thing be found. There is and always will be something mysterious about this that cannot be fully understood. But Paul compares the marital relationship to the union between believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting the Old Testament. And then Paul says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. 
what we do, what the Corinthians were doing, had not only a lasting effect on their own lives, on their own legacy, but on the churches as well, and on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we think that way? That, that what I'm doing actually can have an effect on how people perceive Christ? Yes, it can. And much to the shame of the church today, much of what is going on in the church is bringing a negative, negative repercussions on what Christ, who and what Christ is. Makes it very difficult for people to come to a God who would have followers who do some of the things that they do. Now, that's not going to absolve them of their responsibility, but it does not, it need, we need to be reminded of our responsibility to be true. This is true in regard to the pattern of the first man and the first woman. Woman was made at the beginning as a result of an operation which God performed upon man. How does the church come into being? As the result of an operation which God performed upon the second man, his only begotten. His only begotten beloved son on Calvary's hill. A deep sleep fell upon Adam. A sleep fell upon the son of God. He gave up the ghost. He expired. And there in that operation, the church was taken out. As the woman was taken out of Adam, so the church is taken out of Christ. The woman was taken out of the side of Adam, and it is from the Lord's bleeding, wounded side that the church comes from. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The mystery here is compound. First, there's the profound mystery of the one flesh issue in the first place. But everyone who is in a loving marriage relationship understands this, or, or to some degree understands it. There is a connection between husband and wife that doesn't exist anywhere else. In that same way, Christ wants that kind of a connection with us, that soulmate deep bond where we come to him with everything. He knows everything about us. We know everything that he has told us about him because we spend time in his word. He wants that. He wants more than a superficial relationship. He wants to be a part of everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, everything we have, everything we build. Christ wants to be a part of that. In a good marriage, the partners consult each other over nearly everything except for birthday presents and Christmas presents. Although, they probably ought to ask. Okay, well, we'll leave that alone. So it is with our Lord. Is He a part of our day? Is He a part of our activities? Is He a part of our thoughts? Is He a part of our every waking thought? Now, some of that sounds, it's unattainable. Because there are times throughout the day when you won't be. But the point is, what do you come back to? What do you want? What is your desire? Is it, is our desire for Christ to be a part of everything we do? Is it our desire so that we can say, whatever we're doing right now, if he was to come back, at that point, he'd put his hand on our shoulder and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what Paul is talking about. Do you not know, he says, and he starts that whole litany, that all of these things are not the characteristics of a Christian. And then he lists the, the, the sins. And, and that's not all the sins. Again, let's not make that list comprehensive. It's just a partial list, if you will. But then he also talks about what happens when those sins are being committed. We're joining ourselves to something other than Christ, whether it's a prostitute or thievery or swindling or any of those other things. And Paul says, and I like the way, and I'm going to, I'm going to, Close it up today with what he says at the end of verse 15. May it never be. May it never be. Let's pray. Father, and it's not without the knowledge that you have given us every resource in the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be what you want us to be, to be what you've desired for us in ages past, what you've built for us, what you've caused for us. Everything comes from you. Everything comes from your hand. 
And so let us be about that business today of doing the things that will bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ that will cause people to say, see how they love one another. For it's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.